So in Asia, oftentimes food is also medicine, and wellness is really stressed and not as a opposed to something, right? So you don't think about health until something goes wrong. I feel in the United States, and then you start like sort of backtracking. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Michigan chef Jihei Kim. I followed Jihei's incredible career in Ann Arbor, where she runs the amazing Korean restaurant Miss Kim. Jihei is a food and wine best new chef and has been nominated for multiple James Beard Awards. But what makes me most excited about this conversation about Korean food is Jihei's deep knowledge of Korean food's modern and less modern history. We talk about some of our mutually favorite Korean dishes. Gamjatang most certainly comes up. And we talk about how she came to Zingerman's and eventually partnered with the legendary Ann Arbor restaurant group to open her own place. Enjoy this conversation with Jihei Kim. Jihei Kim, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me here. It's such a pleasure to to meet you and have you in the office because we've corresponded over Instagram and I interviewed you for the book I'm working on, Korea World. But I wanted to have you on the podcast to get your story a little bit. So how's New York been? New York's been great. My family is in New Jersey and I come here fairly often. And it's like, you know, I hop on a plane and then come here if I'm craving like Thai food. Yeah. Or I miss like Chinatown or Koreatown. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you you live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we'll get to your restaurant, Miss Kim, and we'll get into your your story. But a little bit more about New Jersey. Are you going to any Korean restaurants in New Jersey right now? Do you have any favorites <laughs> that you go to in New Jersey? Are you, are you okay. a Michelle House fan in Fort Lee? That's one of my spots and Dookie spots. So my last restaurant that I went to New Jersey that I loved was, uh, I'm forgetting the name, but it's uh, their specialty is gopchang, which is yeah. all the innards. And we always get like the combo platter, right? So all the different parts of the the intestines. And my, I think my favorite is the beef uh, large intestine. Oh, definitely. It's like very fatty and indulgent and rich. And it's not something you can get in Michigan. I've never had gopchang outside of New York and L.A. in the States. And, and yeah. you know, there's gopchang story in, the, in, in Koreatown in Manhattan. Yes, yes. Uh, and then there's, of course, all the great spots in L.A. I think gopchang is incredible little dish, you know, grilled innards. Who doesn't want that? Yeah, so delicious. Oh, so good. So let's – I want to hear about your, your, your background a little bit. You, uh, you grew up in Korea. So I want to know a little bit about the foods you ate growing up and any kind of regional dishes that maybe or, – or dishes that you just loved from your childhood? Yeah. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Korea. I came to United States when I was 13. Up until then, we rarely ate out. Like my mom is and still is the best cook in the family. <laughs> and she has a lot of pride and she was also very frugal. Yeah. So she will make everything from scratch. And, and I mean, at the time, like, she also didn't really allow me to eat any street food. She called it delinquent food and <laughs> she poo-pooed all the restaurant food that's not good enough. Yeah. So some of the some of my favorite things that I, I loved eating growing up um, is like, you know, salongtang. 
Oh, yeah, bone broth soup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. milky, rich, yep, right? Yep, yep. Um, and you have to have that with gaktugi, which is yep. a, a radish kimchi, right? Yeah. And then um, I loved uh, kongnamulbap, which is like a, a rice with some bean sprouts. Really mm-hmm. simple. You eat that with your hands uh, by making a tiny wrap with the seaweed. And then I also love this one side dish that she made called pengopo, which is like a, f- like a, it's a sheet of dried tiny fish and then she'll cut it up and, and cook it. It's like fish jerky almost. You'd yeah. Say. Yeah. It's I a love sheet that of dish. Fish jerky. It's yeah. basically fish jerky. It's a little bit sweet sometimes. Yep. I'm not yeah. sure if that was sweet your. Sweet and savory and lots and lots of texture. If you go to Korea and you can get those on the street, it's the best food. I love that dish so much. Yeah. I have to say, it says a lot when you say your mom is the best cook in the, in the family because you are a food and wine best new chef which is a huge honor. Um, we don't talk about a lot of awards in the world of food media because there are a lot of them, but Food & Wine Best New Chef is like the top of the heap. But also at the even top of the heap is James Beard. You've been nominated for James Beard Awards. So I just want to say, I wanted to get that out and make sure it's clear that you're you're a f- badass, <laughs> amazing chef. I've been to your restaurant in Ann Arbor. Thank you. I'm incredibly humbled. <laughs> Did you ever expect uh, to be here uh, when you were previously working, um, I believe, in hospital administration? You had a job that was not in food. No, not at all. This is a path that was not... I, I don't want to... Yeah, this is not was not a long-term plan. When I was going to school... Um, You know, I was out of status because I was a student. Uh, I was on a student visa and then I let that run out a little bit and I'm not allowed to work. So the only industry that really embraced me was restaurant industry. But you have to be on your feet. And I had I had family members who ran restaurants. I knew how difficult that was. So my goal was to have a sit down job. And you uh, then took the job of hospital administration. So it was like a little bit more, you had a University of Michigan degree. So you were like, I'm going in the professional route. Yeah. Yeah. And then I ended up really not liking it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. And I missed the people in the food industry and... And uh, one thing led to another, and now I have a restaurant, and I never thought I was going to be a chef, but now I guess I feel comfortable calling myself chef now. Uh, I would call you a chef. Yes, let's call you a chef. Let's just actually define that right now. You, you are a chef. Best new chef included. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but I, I like your story. Uh, you uh, worked in Ann Arbor. Uh, you went to school there. Um, you know, I'm a Wisconsin grad, so I'm not a fa- big fan of the football team. I'm just going to say that out. <laughs> Um, go joking. blue, <laughs> go blue. I knew you'd say that. I, I was like, let's go, let's go, let's do. Some I have to say that <laughs> Big Ten rivalry. Yeah, you're right on campus with your restaurant, but you decided to leave this hospital administration desk job. But you found yourself at Zingerman's, which is one of the great food stores in not just America but the world. It's absolutely spectacular. I hope we have Ari uh, Weisenwig. Yes, his name. I hope we have him on the podcast. I'm working on booking that. But let's hear about that experience of working the cheese counter and having that training through Zingerman's. I, you know, I sort of like stumbled upon the cheesemonger job at Zingerman's Delicatessen. And I I find that an incre- incredible good luck because the training there does not just focus on selling cheese. It focuses on like understanding a sort of like a, a food culture that you may not pay attention to if you just work at a restaurant. So like connecting to history, tradition, uh, artisanal producers, and uh, sort of like local ingredients they use. And then they also focus on developing your professional palate. Oh, right. 
Yeah, so there's, I mean, <laughs> there are food that I just love, even if it's really not great, because I grew up with it. Oh, God. <laughs> well, instant ramen noodles, legitimately good, so I'm not going <laughs> to name that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like any kind of like Korean snacks from 7-Eleven, yeah, like yeah, yeah. stale rice balls, like I will eat them and love them. Yeah, yeah. If it's yeah. under those fluorescent lights, yeah. and purchase that 7-Eleven. Any kind of tteokbokki, whether it's like from street or elevated, I love that. Um, but I don't love cereal because I didn't grow up with it. Yeah. But some people have all, a lot of nostalgia attached to it. So I've sort of learned from Zingerman's training to be able to sort of distinguish what you love because of your memory and what you love because it's good no matter where your background is. Such a great point, G, because, you know, it's, it's like we are biased inherently about because we have these backgrounds. But then when you're a professional and you're working the cheese counter and you're working with charcuterie or working with olive oils and vinegars, you have to be objective, right? And you're, so that's the taste training you received at Zingerman's. What did that training entail exactly? <laughs> well, lots of tasting. Yeah. And Twist your arm. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, it's a great day if we're tasting, say, like, We'll, we'll pick a theme. So we'll say, like, let's try three different sheep's milk cheeses from different regions, uh, but of different age. So that kind of stuff is really fantastic. But when we we're doing olive oil tasting, that mm-hmm. could have been really challenging because I was tasting different types of olive oils. And after, like, cups and cups and cups of olive oils, it's a lot of oil to be drinking. Mm-hmm. And then your palate dulls really fast. Yeah. But having that training was really great because you're sort of freed uh, to talk about the food because I do believe that everybody's palate is really great, whether you can talk about it or not. Optimist. And it's, it's learning how to really point it out and talk yeah. about it with your peers. Really good point. So were there pop quizzes at Zingerman's? Were you, were you kind of like tested on your knowledge or was it a little more freeform? It was more freeform. Yeah. It was, uh, we have a, we have steps. We have yeah. steps of tasting. So you, we encourage you know about the product. And then you look at it and then you smell it because smell so important. And then you taste it and then we discussed it. And it was just, it, I could not believe I was getting paid <laughs> to do that. It was so much fun. It's so, it's so cool to hear that. And I, I want to fast forward in, the, in your path. You had, you had run a food cart for a while in Ann Arbor when that was through Zingerman's. But then through an incubator program. But then you eventually were given the opportunity to open your own Korean restaurant, Miss Kim. I want to know... Uh, uh, you you write about uh, entering nerd mode before you actually uh, opened Miss Kim. What does that mean exactly, nerd mode? Oh, I love that term. I, I think it means that I didn't know what I was talking about because <laughs> at the time, I thought I was doing some good research into Korean food because I'm not a classically trained chef. And I didn't really have intentions to go to culinary school in the United States to learn about Korean food. And I knew I wanted to do Korean food. So I thought I was doing a good amount of research. But now I look back and the more I dig into, uh, like, I I looked at various different aspects of Korean food, regional Korean food, historical Korean food, Buddhist Korean food, uh, expat Korean food. So like what are people doing that are Korean ethnic Koreans on Chinese border or or like, you know, Korean Americans. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the more I dig into those things, I realize I really knew nothing. And I still feel that there's so much to learn. And I 
am not. I I don't say I'm in a nerd mode anymore. <laughs> I would say that I'm a I'm a permanent student of Korean yeah. food. Lovely uh, way of putting it all. I think uh, your your dedication to the history of Korean food in, in in the world is clear through our various conversations off microphone, but on microphone. Let's let's talk about the last five years of Korean food in America. Uh, what an exciting time it's been, including the work you've done in Ann Arbor at Miss Kim, but. How do you describe this kind of growth, this boom in Korean food in America? Yeah. So even like five years ago um, or even like, you know, three years ago, I would hear like, oh, this is not authentic. Like there was a lot of conversation around authenticity. And I think that's a good conversation to have. But I think that should not be the only conversation we have because Part of uh, what I learned uh, looking into Korean food is that Korea is not a big country and we still have a lot of regional food. Um, So being true to where you are is really important. And even though I was born and raised in Korea and a huge part of my identity is Korean, uh, Korean, um, I thought about it and I've I've been in the United States much longer than I I was in Korea and I've been in Michigan much longer than (laughs) I've been in Korea. So then there is a part of my my identity that's Korean and that's American. And to only talk about authenticity alone is sort of sort of not acknowledging that part of my identity and the people here and also food that's being served here. And in the past, definitely five years and three years, what I see is sort of this change of embracing Korean-American culture and not looking at it as uh, degrading the tradition, but more as, I, I like to think of it as like a, it's another region of Korean food. Fully agree. I think the the idea of fusion cooking in the Korean American diaspora um, was often maligned. Like ten years ago, people were you know kind of snarking at like you know a kimchi carbonara. But now, to your point, I fully agree. It's its own cuisine. It's becoming crystallized more and more than ever. And I think if you look at the younger generation of chefs. Um, in this world where you can actually open restaurants with less barriers of entry. Um, like I've been going to this place, Nona, in uh, in New York, on, on the, in the East Village, and they're doing Korean wellness drinks and smoothies and, and uh, pajin. And I feel like um, it's one example of hundreds that I'm seeing on Instagram and, and encountering. I fully agree with that statement. I mean, can you give me an example of a couple places in around America that you've been excited about? Yeah. Um, I very recently ate at Mari. Yep. And I thought that was just amazing experience because first, the rice is seasoned with just sesame and salt instead of vinegar. And it does not look like kimbap that you find on street side in Korea, but it it's reminiscent of kimbap, but it's well thought out. And um, the flavors uh, were definitely Korean, but I love that. And and I, the chef, uh, Chef Sung Shim, I think. Yep, Chef Shim, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he's also using different types of seaweed that comes from Korea. So this um, 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say elevation, but sort of like presenting different side of Korean food other than what has been available in the United States in this way and stay true to the tradition and tenets of Korean food and flavor and still be able to uh, showcase the chef's creativity in a different setting that it, it we're used to. I think that kind of stuff is really fantastic. And I haven't tried it yet, but I'm really excited to try Yangban Society in LA. I've been there. It's great. I had the whole fish. Incredible. I still think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I like like the setting that they created and I'm really interested in trying their jajangmyeon because jajangmyeon is such an interesting dish. It's already a bastardized dish (laughs) in Korea, but it is yeah, it's like a burger. Everybody loves it. Yeah. Yeah. Black set, like black sauce, uh, JJM is like one of my favorite porky noodley dishes you're ever going to find. I want to go back to kimbap though because I think it's a good point. Like kimbap lab here, Unjo Park at Momofuku mm-hmm. is doing really creative kimbaps and I feel that's one dish that really crystallizes your your opinion and your your thesis about where Korean food is now, how it has its own identity in America. Um, do you make kimbap at Miss Kim? Are you in that in that world yourself? <laughs> I make kimbap for specials. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the challenges of being uh, running a restaurant um, is um, like training the cooks who's never done Korean food, and to do it right and have that skill set. So I do it for special events and specials. So we had a a brunch kimbap with. Uh, smoked salmon that's uh, smoked by our neighbor, Tracklement. And uh, he used um, Korean ingredients to cold smoke the salmon. And then I used it in my gimbap. It's sort of like a, it's very like hyper local because it's made by not only somebody from Ann Arbor, but like sharing the same walls with me. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then also like I had, I did work in Jewish deli for a long time as a cheesemonger. So smoked salmon comes in and then, you know, I made it for breakfast so that was really fun. Yeah, if you make it to Ann Arbor, uh, the the restaurant, your restaurant, Miss Kim, is is right kind of kitty corner in like a complex of of of, of stalls and 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 like a f- big food market there. And I just say you gotta you gotta visit it. I want to uh, segue to Duckbokki because mm-hmm. when I visited uh, earlier this year. Um, I got to have a couple versions of duckbokki. I had um, a kind of the the royal version, the royal court version, and then I had more of the traditional crimson version, the crimson red, you know, saucy version. But you know, duckbokki, I thought for years has been a singular dish, right? In America, it's been that one, you know, mushy, delicious, spicy, has fish cakes, has a lot of like seaweed, anchovy stock in it. But you are doing it quite differently. So what's your version of dukbuki, but also why dukbuki for you? Why is it so interesting? Dukbuki is, okay, it's such a weird children's food if you think of it from like an American perspective because it has a sort of a mushy texture, which could be unfamiliar, and and it's a little spicy. Um, but it is quintessential street food and it is a quintessential kids' food in Korea. And I was not allowed to have this in Korea. So Really? Oh, no. My mom would occasionally make it, but eating off the street. Straight junk food. (laughs) Yeah, delinquent food. So I was (laughs) definitely not allowed. And she also did not believe in giving any cash to a child. So I used to trade my milk boxes from school uh, with the the, uh, street lady. Like banana milk, strawberry milk? No, I was also not allowed to have any sweetened milk. (laughs) You've missed some of the greatest hits in Korean junk food. Oh, 
I, I've had them. Now you have, yeah. of course. I'm kidding. Just yeah. because I was not allowed, it doesn't mean <laughs> I didn't have them. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but the access was really difficult. Right, so right, right. even though, like, honestly, truly, I did not enjoy tteokbokki when I was young, yeah. but I really wanted it because I was not allowed. So I found ways to have it. But the dish... Uh, the tteokbokki adjacent dish that I really liked was tteokgochi, which is deep fried. Yeah. So it's on a skewer, deep fried, and then quick sauce on top. And then it, it's also cheaper a little bit. And then I would eat it walking around on a stick. So that's the version that I really liked. So when I wanted to put this tteokbokki on the menu first, I wanted it different than how everybody was doing. And then second, I wanted to add some intriguing texture. So it's not just a mushy, soupy thing. Um, and I also knew that fish cake and anchovy stock at the time may not be everybody's cup of tea, especially in Michigan. Yeah. So I wanted it to be something that was presented as delicious to most palates. So you've done it in a couple ways, and it is one of your bestsellers, at least now. I know your, ro- your menu is rotating because of uh, a lot of takeout service versus dine-in and the pandemic. But once we're, we're through the pandemic and you have a full dining room again, um, what are some dishes – maybe traditional Korean dishes that you hope to serve at Miss Kim to this, you know, Ann Arbor audience that, you know, might not be fully adventurous uh, towards Korean cooking, but maybe maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. I think the first step that I will take in kind of rebuilding my menu post-pandemic would be bring bring some of the uh, fun that I was having before. So definitely tteokbokki. So right now we have only three versions, which is uh, the street style with gochujang and then royale style. And and I started putting parmesan on it because Mm -hmm. it just goes well together. And and then we have the kimchi pork version. And I would love to bring the the, uh, black bean jajang tteokbokki version and the rosé tteokbokki version with... Rosé tteokbokki. Rosé tteokbokki is oh, so good. Cream and tteokbokki together coming yeah. together. Mm, so yeah, good. and I like to make my uh, uh, tomato sauce low and slow. Uh, but instead of using pepperoncino, I like to use gochujang for it and then like, you know, finish it with the cream and then top it with mozzarella. That's going to be really good. Yeah. And then I want to bring back juke. We used to have a seasonal yeah. juke. So... Uh, right now, we were probably going to be getting ready to do ramp juke or pea shoot juke or, or cool. yeah, asparagus juke. During summer, we love doing corn juke and we use cornmeal um, on top of rice. And then during winter, it's uh, chicken juke or mushroom juke. So we, I would love to bring that back. To be clear, juke is a rice porridge, right? It's, yes, it it's, is. Yeah. It's traditionally served in the breakfast uh, time in Korea, but it can be served, you know, all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about gochujang because when we talked recently, you had an interesting point and I wanted to get at it. Um, gochujang, which is, you know, the spicy fermented bean paste, it's it's tenjang with, with pepper, essentially. You know, there's that's a generalization, but it's a spicier version of tenjang. But you made a point that it became popularized post-war Korea. I wanted uh, you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. I, I have to say, you know, if you look at the history of chang, and then like, you know, three Korean mother sauces, I think of it as kanjang, tenjang, and gochujang. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kanjang and tenjang sort of like happen in process similarly, and it takes longer time to ferment, and then it has a really long history. Gochujang comes in a little later, mm-hmm. um, because contrary to what people think of Korean food now, chili, chilies and chili flakes are have not been around for that long. The theory is that it went into Korea in 17th century. And then if you, I, I've been looking at a lot of mm-hmm. historical Korean cookbooks and 
you don't see recipes with a lot of chili chili flakes until like maybe 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And when I said that it's post-war product, I was specifically talking about dakboki dish. Um, because before it was more like sort of sauteed or braised soy sauce based dish. Um, and the story is that it's not, it's like during 60s, uh, somebody accidentally put in a little gochujang and it was fantastic. And then gochujang has such like a amazing flavor because it, it's a little sweet and uh, it's good, medium spicy. And yeah. Korean chili peppers have like a balanced sweetness to it and not overwhelming. They're kind of like the like Aleppo peppers, right? Yeah. They're a little sweeter like that. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's a super easy way to kind of make the food tasty without having too much stuff in it. So for example, of Dokboki, the Royal version has everything in it. Like the way it's documented, it has meat, it has chestnuts and yeah. mushrooms and lots of vegetables and eggs. And not everybody can afford that. So then if you take away all the luxurious ingredients and add tteokbokki, it's just as delicious. And you didn't have to spend a lot of money for it that you don't have post-war. And I, I think this is sort of a, a development and, and how food evolves and sometimes when we are strapped with resources, we come up with like the most delicious things. Such a good point. And, and, and thanks for that, 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 that history of gochujang. I feel like it's a little less known that there is a more modern history of gochujang versus tenjan and ganjan. Appreciate that. What do you cook at home the end of a shift? Like are you leaning into a Korean comfort dish or are you making something totally, you know, off book? Off, off the grid for your. For you. I I rarely cook at home. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of a dumb question. Yeah. No chefs really cook. Yes, but. Um, let's see. Uh, my go-to meals at home is actually it's going to be embarrassing. It's a can of tuna. However, I I I am a former cheesemonger and a specialty food person, so it has to be Ortiz tuna. Okay, Ortiz, the best Spanish tuna, yeah. oil packed, right? Absolutely, has to be oil packed. Olive yeah. oil packed. Always Ortiz tuna. And toasted seaweed, and I always have rice and some kimchi. That's that's all. That's that's what I live on. <laughs> Stop it! That is such a good dish. I, I actually Ortiz. You can buy it at Zingerman's. They'll put it on sale once in a while. So they they'll put it on sale once in a while, and employees get fifty percent discount. Ooh. So after both discounts, it becomes almost as cheap as regular uh, canned tuna for me. So I buy cases at a time. You just said something. Fifty percent. Employee discount at Zingerman's. Yes. My goodness. It brings those prices down to like almost manageable. I mean, it is an expensive store. It is. It is not. It's a specialty store because sometimes it feels like it's for special occasions. Um, They have many different offerings. Um, So I think there is something for everybody. But for me, if I'm eating a can of tuna a day, it becomes a very expensive habit. Yeah. And I have to clarify, it's an employee-owned company, correct? We have uh, an employee co-ownership program. That's good. So and, and I also don't want to shame, uh, price shame, because uh, while it is truly one of the most expensive specialty stores in the country, even in New York and L.A. standards and San Francisco, it still is, um, you know, expensive stuff. Like the curation there is better than most stores. Yeah, yeah. and I think people need to also understand, um, you know, 
creating incredibly delicious food is expensive. Yep. And getting artisanal uh, producers to be able to afford their living is expensive. And also providing staff with full benefits and living wage, which we do, is also expensive. So when something is expensive, I think you should look at how, why that is and how that is. So if you have a company who's not treating the employees well, and then monies are all going to like one person, yeah. that's not great. But in order to run a great, successful business that's also ethical, that that takes costs. Sure. Do you, do you ever think about um, my, my last calculation in, in Korea and Japan, you know, I think the, the total is like 40 to 45 percent of income goes to food. In America, and this is maybe an older stat, it's around 8 percent. So that's like such a large gulf there in terms of what Americans want to spend and what Koreans and Japanese and East Asian countries want to spend or plan to spend on food. Do you, how do you how do you kind of uh, do that math in your head when you're talking thinking about your your diners and your customers? Yeah, that's that's really challenging. Um, I think I think some of the gap is because of the perception of food and how we look at food. So in Asia, oftentimes food is also medicine. Yeah. And wellness is really stressed and not as a opposed something, right? So you don't think about health until something goes wrong, I feel, in the United States. And then you start like sort of backtracking. And I think in, in, in Asia, it's sort of like a constant upkeep. And what you put in your body every single day matters as, as yeah, food is medicine. So when I think about my restaurant and the price point, because it is definitely more expensive than other average restaurants in Korea, I, I try to sort of like meet that part of the equation mm-hmm. by using better ingredients mm-hmm. and and um, providing something that's different than your um, your average Korean restaurants. And I also have programs that would allow you to enjoy the food um, even if you cannot afford it when it's expensive. So I have entrees who are that, that are like high 20s, mm-hmm. but I also have sandwiches that are like below $15. And I also offer like free kids meals to anybody who need food so they can come and have something. And we started the free kids meal program during the pandemic because we realized that a lot of kids um, rely on school meal programs. And if you don't have school, don't you don't school, have school. You don't have meal. Yeah. I know. It's, yeah. it's nuts. Yeah. And then we're hoping that maybe in like a near future, we'll be able to introduce sliding scale um, food menu. Oh, that would be amazing. I mean, I, I had to ask you that question just because it, it seems like there, this is a, an issue, especially with inflation and prices, food prices going up even higher and higher that – the price sensitivity for diners is becoming very challenging yeah. in the restaurant world. I, I'm so glad you said that because we. I, I feel I want, handling the pandemic is one of the things that I am most proud of. Uh, and But we did things very differently. So when the pandemic hit, we started opening more hours. Mm-hmm. And we actually lowered the prices because I figured eating in and taking out is a completely different experience. And then we dealt with the inflation of the ingredients by sort of reducing the menu to stop offering more fun but more expensive ingredients. Mm-hmm. So we don't – it's a little sad as a chef, but we made um, decisions to not carry any more seafood and fresh oysters, for example, or like not have as much red meat on it. And that allowed us to keep the prices not – 
going up as much. So I think our prices right right now is slightly lower or about the same as before the pandemic time. And I think that has helped people to be able to come back again. It sounds like Miss Kim can be scaled, to use a corny business term. I feel like it could be, or, or at least expanded. Do you have expansion plans within the state of Michigan? Um, <laughs> you know I'm looking I at have, you with a, my follow-up question, too. Yes, I, <laughs> I have expansion dreams. Yeah. yeah. I would love like to dig more into a vegetarian food um, aspect of Korean food. And also, like a lot of Korean food is like, you know, it could be amazing, like pescatarian food or like, you know, use a little bit of fish sauce, but mostly vegetables. And so not so meat heavy. So I kind of yeah. want to do that kind of food. Um, but as long as I'm part of Zingerman's, we have made commitment to stay local within Washtenaw County. Mm. So if I do anything, it would be probably outside of the organization. I see. So it would be an outside. I mean, I, I have to say down the road is where I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I have to say West Michigan loves Korean food. West Michigan loves Korean food. Would you ever <laughs> consider it Kalamazoo? I would consider it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> On the record, I had to put you there. Thanks for being a sport with that. Uh, Jihei, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if there is a book project you could work on without the burden of, of budget or deadline, meaning you had unlimited budget and unlimited time, what would that book be? Oh, so I want to do a book where we, like I recreate like a day in a, a Korean court or like a, a day in like a, a Joseon streets where there's like a huge, I don't know, agricultural festival or something. I want to... Uh, find the menu of like a princess's wedding or something, oh, wow. recreate that. Um, and maybe like do a two version of like really true to the description and then sort of like my take on it. And I want to have K-pop stars come and then reenact it. This is crazy in the best part. I mean, this is yeah. so genius. Well, you said no budget or no, time. No, I so, love this. Yeah. I would love like BTS boys to come and yeah. participate. And then um, if we make some sort of like a, a TV um, show of like the background making of that. And then and then I want to like have a big party after with the food. So, yeah, that would be my dream project. I love that you took the question literally. Uh, many of our guests don't. And you're like, this is a blowout budget. I mean, I, I but but I think it's doable. I love the idea that you're going to be mining into the history of Korean food, but bringing into the modern age. Yeah, yeah, I, I, my, I, that was a great question because my imagination started like going bigger and bigger and bigger it. and I, I can see it. I can vision it in front of my eyes. Jihae Kim, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. It's been my pleasure. Jane Kelly, Jenny Harton, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a tremendous uh, honor to have you on. I, I feel like you two, along with your entire community, Eat Your Books, really um, inspires a lot of us from the other side of the of the of the street. You know, the book book writers and the publishers. So it's just a nice to meet you. Yeah, it's great to be here. I love your uh, podcast and your newsletter. I appreciate that. Well, Jane, I wanted to ask you first. You know, tell us a little bit about Eat Your Books, the community. Um, when did it start? And really, what's the main goal of Eat Your Books right now in 2022? So it started, launched in 2009. 
Um, I came up with the idea because I owned a lot of cookbooks and I found I'd go online when I wanted to find a recipe quickly. And I thought if I had a database of my cookbooks, I'd actually use them rather than you know going online. So once I'd come up with the idea, um, created the website with my sister, Fiona, who lives in New Zealand, and um, launched it then. And it's sort of gone from strength to strength. It's all over the world. Uh, US is the biggest market, but um, we're all, all the main English-speaking countries around the world have a lot of members. Um, and the, the community aspects um, is about the shared love of cookbooks and cooking so we have a forum where people ask questions uh, share knowledge um, all the things that you wish you could ask your best friend if your best friend was obsessed with cooking and cookbooks as you were um, and so you know the type of things like one of the popular subjects at the moment is what makes you decide not to buy a cookbook oh wow and that's that's uh, yes <laughs> I think publishers should probably read that one um, and then we also have notes, which is a great resource where members um, share their experience cooking a recipe. And so for somebody when they're going to cook a recipe, to be able to see all the issues or benefits that someone else had when they cooked it is a great resource because you can't do that with cookbooks. You can do it online, you know, with blog recipes, but not with cookbooks. So the note side is a huge element of it. It's a great point. You really can't have that interactive nature as much with cookbooks. And, and the fact that you've cracked this code and, and created a large community of folks who are commenting on all the different um, recipes in these books. So let me uh, toss it to you, Jenny. Why do you personally love cookbooks so much? I mean, is it the cooking? Like, is it the actual recipe development, the head note flowing into the recipe, having an interesting thing to make? Or is it the larger package of cookbooks, which, you know, is part of it, the game as well? For me, cookbooks are like an escape and they represent like a world of possibilities. Everyone that comes into my house says, oh my God, why do you need all this? And I said, to me, this is like, you know, thousands of opportunities to try new new um, cultures and new cuisines and to learn more. And they're just inspiration. They're a jumping off point for me. Um, I also, yes, I love the cooking part. Um, I thought, you know, growing up, I never was very good at anything in particular. And I started cooking from cookbooks that a friend gave me and I got all kinds of praise and, you know, I liked it. So I just learned more and more and more. So I love that. So let me ask you, Jane, how plugged in are you with the publishers, with the both the major publishers, the four majors, as at my count, there's four majors, and then uh, four or five, I guess that's two to be debated. And then the uh, all the independent publishers who you cover. I mean, are you are you talking to, to editors? Are you talking to PR? How does that work exactly? Yeah, Jenny. Jenny's actually our connection to the publishers, but we tend to talk to the publicists because they're the ones who are wanting us to cover their cookbooks. Um, we don't talk to the editors um, so much, sometimes with the smaller publishers, but not so much with the big ones. But Jenny can really talk more to that. Yeah, Jenny, are you are you getting advanced copies? Um, are you, you know, you're not reviewing books really because I feel like that's not really what you what you're trying to do here. You're trying to create a community of dialogue. I do review books. Um, I get advanced PDFs from almost all the major players, um, and I get advanced copies when they're available. You know, with the slowdown with COVID, things are a little bit slower, but I always get the PDFs. And I do a cursory review for our monthly cookbook roundup. I also do a little bit more in-depth review when I do a promotion, like for your book. Yeah. Um, 
So, and I do have some contact with some of the publishers. Um, for instance, when Pasta Grannies was shopping a publisher way back when, I recommended Hardy Grant to them only because um, I had a really close relationship with them and they were in the UK and and they wanted someone that they could, you know, respect their their vision. So um, occasionally that does happen, but not not a great deal. Yeah. I, let me rephrase because when I said review, I meant critically review because, you know, there is real editorial rigor with Eat Your Books. And I, I want to be clear, you should definitely subscribe and, and join because and I'll link to it in the show notes because there is a, a, a really wonderful roundup um, that comes out with frequency um, and more in-depth spotlights to books that maybe uh, cookbook fans and home cooks might not even know about. So just respect that for sure. So I want to yeah, be I mean, clear about that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the strengths for Jenny that she's got the breadth to be able to look at books that probably mainstream reviewers wouldn't because they really have limited space. Whereas for us, we're trying to introduce people to cookbooks so that they may never come across. And and also from other countries, you know, if you're in the US, you may not hear about books from Australia or New Zealand or the UK uh, or South Africa, and uh, and we introduce you to them. Um so I think that's a big difference to Eat Your Books and and other cookbook reviewers. Let's talk about the spring because I feel like spring, um, the season is winding down. But, you know, there was such um, a massive amount of titles coming out this spring because of COVID delaying a lot of titles. Um, I'd like to hear both of you and jump in whoever wants to answer. If you're seeing anything in general in terms of trends, because I, I want to know like what trends, like what, how are cookbooks changing and what are you seeing right now? Um, I'll handle, I'll, I'll go first if you don't mind. I think right now there's just so many cocktail books. Maybe we all just need a drink with what's going on. There's just there's so many cocktail books and there's so many board and platter type specific cookbooks. Um, I just think they're the, the, the market saturated with those. Um, there may be some really incredibly great ones that are, very unique, but they just get lost in all of the the ones that are being published. Um, and of course, you've got the health, you know, the air fryers, Instapots, those type of things. I think there's a lot of that happening now that maybe we could step back a little bit from those types of subjects. Yeah, I'd agree. I, I think when you saturate a market for several years around an appliance, there can be a little bit of exhaustion there. So Jane, let me ask you, what's what's on the horizon then? in terms of um, trends that you're seeing with titles released for this fall. And we'll definitely, we'll get into the spring and, and we'll have a great conversation about some of your favorite books, but I, I, let's move forward and say, you know, are there some, some trends that you're seeing? I mean, definitely um, as Jenny says about cocktails, but I think specifically in cocktails, there's um, some great books coming out um, about low alcohol or no alcohol cocktails, which I think is becoming more of a trend within the generally within the cocktail uh, market as well. Um, there's a new one, Drink Lightly, which is lovely. It's um, it's not alcohol free, but it's really going for the lower alcohol. Um, and I, and I think there's a trend towards those type of books as well within the cocktail sector. And then um, in general, you know, there's a lot of um, which is is not a recent trend, but a lot of, a lot of you know things you want to make every night you know the the the, the half-baked harvest type of book she's just got a new one out and and uh you know looking at people who you know have a family and every night it's like oh what am I going to make for dinner and you know these books are great there's a lot a lot of those coming down um into the into the fall 
Um, Jenny tends to see more of the advanced PDFs, so she could probably have a better feel for what's coming down in the fall. Okay. Jenny, what do you think? Um, what I'm seeing is a lot of great baking books, a lot of more bread books, and then there's a lot of chefs. What I've what I'm cooking at home, what I cook for friends because they were, you know, they were locked down. There's just loads and loads of those books. Um, Every year I say, oh, they can't possibly outdo the year before, but I'm just so, so excited about what's coming in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I think it's going to be a really cool fall. And, and I have to say about the, what to cook every night, let's segue into uh, the conversation about uh, the spring, because one book that I, think about a lot now that like what do I make tonight is I dream of dinner by Ali Slagle and that you you sent me some titles ahead of time um and so that was on your list and I just think Ali's book now that I, I'm started cooking more from it it definitely the low effort part in the in the subhead is actually true so that's I, that that reminds me of it but let let's just dive in what are some of your favorite books I'm loving the modern proper just like I dream of dinner I like I mean, yes, sometimes you want to do a more elaborate meal, but you also want to cook a, a, a great meal that doesn't take a lot of time and has a lot of, it has great taste and flavors. So I really, I really love those two. Um, what is the modern carbs. proper exactly? Describe that. It's simple dinners for every day. Just more little, a little bit maybe up more upscale than I dream of dinner, but it's just, it's a very, a very beautiful book. Um I'm afraid to go reach for it because I may have a Jenga stack of books fall down here. <laughs> but uh, good. I, I put notes on more of the other ones. But it's just it's it's a beautiful book, and it's just about simple dinners, just to share with around the table with family and friends. Let's go with another one, and then we'll go over to Jane. My America, I love My America. Um, recipes from a young black chef. It's just there's so many. It's a melting pot of um, what makes you know what the chef is all about, you know, Nigeria, the Caribbean, American South, New York, and it's very approachable. Sometimes, sometimes some of these books aren't like my family's not going to eat this, you know, eat these things, but there's so many recipes in there that you can make for dinner and you can make that the whole family will enjoy. And it's just, it's a very cool hip book right now. If someone's looking for something a little different. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's the follow-up to Kwame Mwachi's and Joshua David Stein's memoir, Kwame's memoir and the story of his journey. And this was the one, you know, the follow-up that actually has recipes and, and, and so you're actually cooking from, uh, the, through, through the stories of Kwame. Uh, what's our, is there a recipe that comes to mind that you're really drawn to in my America? He has, I mean, I, I know this is going to sound very lame, but there's like a fried chicken recipe. Then there's a Louisiana red beans and rice. There's those types of recipes that are very approachable to someone who might be new to his type of cooking. You know, he's a top chef. He's, you know, he's, when you think of, he's, he's like the cool hip rock star right now of, of cooking. And um, there's plenty, plenty of approachable things. And there's plenty of ones that might take a little bit more effort to, to go, you know, grab the ingredients and make. So it makes it makes his style of cooking from all of his background more approachable. Uh, Jane, do you have a couple of titles that you'd like to call out from the spring? Um, well, I mentioned Half-Baked Harvest. Um, I think she's great for every night cooking. This is her third cookbook. Tegan Gerard is her name, right? Yeah, Tegan yeah. Gerard. And this is her third book. It's called Every Day. 
So most of her cooking is aimed at every day anyway, but this one's very much in that niche. And uh, and her recipes are great for, you know, if you're cooking for a family, uh, really good recipes. I'm very into baking books, and I love a book that's just come out called 50 Things to Bake Before You Die. Um, she basically went and, and got lots of very well-known bakers to nominate their recipe that they feel is, you know, if you're a baker, you should make this. So it's got some interesting recipes in there. Um, who's the author of that one let's let's just say the name so we so we can call it yeah it's it's uh, because it's a compilation of lots of different people it's is lots of uh like christina tossi and and joe of of melt bar and and joanne chang of Mm -hmm. flower in boston and and so it's alison reedy is the person who's the uh, who compiled it but it's got lots of different um bakers have contributed recipes um, and then, you know, I mentioned this other one that I like, this Drink Lightly, this one about low alcohol um, cocktails, and that's by Natasha David. I think that's a, a really interesting book. And let's talk about Sweet Paris a second. Oh, yes. That's Love. just, it's absolutely gorgeous. There's any everything from really com- a complex dessert to very approachable madelines and things like that. Um, it it takes it takes you into a glimpse of Frank's uh, Parisian lifestyle. Talks about floral arrangements, places to shop. It's just like it's like a perfect combination of everything in a book. You know, you feel like you're in Paris. You're getting all these beautiful desserts, and it's just it's a great a great escape book, but also something that you'll use you know, to bake. I baked two things so far. They, the pictures weren't very pretty, so I haven't posted them. <laughs> but I have friends who have baked several of more, the more approachable ones right now, like the bunt cake and that type of thing, and they were delicious. That's Sweet Paris by Frank Adrian Barron, just to get that out there. Yes. Sweet Paris. Yeah. I'm, going to, I'm going to Paris this summer, and I'm definitely going to get lots of recommendations from that book for great bakeries or patisseries. Perf. So I see also on the, t- on the list you had Turkey and the Wolf, and I was just talking to a writer about about doing a feature for taste about that book, and did you get a get a chance to take a look at it? Did it did it make it make it to your house? Yeah, well, the PDF did, but the book uh, has not yet. I'm I'm sure it will be coming. Um, you know, it was at the bottom of the sea with Melissa Clark's book, um, but I I don't know how to say this without sounding. It's just like high end hillbilly and i mean that with all due respect you know leftover fried chicken salad dorito dust um it's and it's it's just a great playful spirit and like really food that come on we all like every once in a while really want to you know a meatloaf sandwich you know but they're but their meatloaf sandwich so it's just a fun fun book and i i i love to get the book in my hand and start cooking from it it's hard to do that from a pdf and that's turkey and the wolf and that's a that's a book that uh, is uh you know based on the restaurant new orleans and a much celebrated restaurant new orleans and high and hillbilly that's funny i i, I buy into that I, I feel like it's there's a real spirit um and a real creativity with the recipe development um you've got jj good um as a co-author and he always is uh, really writing great books with chefs. Um, I'm glad you called that one out. Um, are there a few other titles? There are, but they're going to sound like um, I am not a big, you know, I'm not like, oh, I have to have this celebrity cookbook. Of course, your book, I love your book because it teaches you teaches you great concepts and techniques. 
But um, Food IQ cool. will plug my book. Ha <laughs> ha, joking. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that was not on purpose. Appreciate it. I really it. do love those types of like salt, you know, fat, acid, heat. Yeah. But thank, like, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It's really oh, you're nice welcome. of you. It's a, it's a wonderful book and I bought another copy for a friend. Oh, very sweet but, of you. Um, thank you. Um, Eat and Eats the World and even Shaq's book right now. I mean, I, yes, I know people are going to roll their eyes, but there are some really good looking comfort type recipes in Shaq's um, Shaquille O'Neal's book. Um, I was like, I got it. And I said, oh, um, how am I going to make this sound good? And I didn't have to because there are really good looking recipes in there. And now I wish I had I had my notes in front of me. But, um, and you know, Eaton, I think, am I pronouncing that right? He's Drew Barrymore's mm-hmm. um, cook person or whatever. Yeah. His book is is, uh, is nice too because he it's all around, you know, global global eats. Yeah, Aton um, eats the world. He Aton Bernath is um, a, a TikToker and and is a contributor on the Drew Barrymore show, and he's a guest on the Taste Podcast. A previous episode, you can check it out. But yeah, I agree that book's very cool. Right. So those are the types of books that are, even though people may you know, like pass them by, and there's so many. I know we don't talk about the international ones that are coming out, but you know, like Hardy Grant and Quadrille and Bloomsbury, they all have great books. Um, yeah. And you can read about them on our site. Um, yeah, eat your books. So I want to ask you each, um, and I ask, I've had lots of uh, indie bookstore owners on the Taste Podcast and on the Monday interview at Taste. And I always ask this question because I think we have an audience here of not just fans of cooking and cookbooks on the Taste Podcast, but we have you know maybe an editor or two are, are tuned in. Hello, editors. So let's. Find, I'd like to hear both of you what are some of the topics that you think are underpublished in cookbooks? Like what, what needs to be out there in the marketplace? You're really plugged in. I would say international baking titles. Yes, more are coming out, but I love uh, books that like, you know, 20th century baking, that type of thing. Um, Save South America, a book just devoted to South American desserts or that type of thing. I'm I'm thrilled about all the Asian baking books that are headed our way. And like Mooncakes and Milk Bread was just, I mean, that was last year, but absolutely an incredible book. So I like, I like that type of, um, like that type of title what myself. Do you, what do you think, Jane? What needs to be, what, 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 what cookbook needs to be written right now? <laughs> oh gosh if we had to come up with one I mean definitely uh, you know I'm with Jenny on the baking because I own a huge number of baking books and really how many more brownie or cookie recipes do you need but unusual stuff you know stuff that's more you know that uh, you wouldn't come across um, there's been a few Asian baking books recently that have been really good um, and um, you know I think back to what I said earlier about you know the the low alcohol or no alcohol cocktails I think that's that's definitely a, an area that there's you know there's been a few recently but I think there could be some more there um, yeah I mean I, it's very hard to come up with just something that's no those are great yeah, those are great yeah. uh, categories and I, I hope we do see more international baking so give me give us a, a sense of how you can join eat your eat your books and um, become a member of the community. How does that work exactly? So you can join as a free member, uh, which means that you get um, access to all of the online content, which is about 370,000 recipes. I've I've got a a click through to the uh, full recipe online. Um, Or if you are a cookbook lover or you subscribe to food magazines, you would join as a premium member, which is $30 a year. 
And with that, you can add all of your cookbooks that you own, all of your magazines that you subscribe to. And then you've got a search engine for all of the recipes that they contain. And you can search by lots of different ways, ingredients or special diet or ethnicity or, you know, lot, lot, any combination of those. And then when you're looking for a recipe, if you want to use up something in your fridge or you've just bought, you've seen an ingredient you want to buy in the grocery store, you just search by that and it'll tell you all the recipes you've got in your own collection um, that you uh, that that uh, you can use it. I mean, a lot of members say that they waste a lot less food um, now because they, if they've got something in the fridge and they're thinking, oh, this is going to go off soon, I really need to use this up, they can put that in with other ingredients they also want to use up and then, and they'll find recipes they would never have come across. Wait, so um, backing up, so for a premium membership, you how do you prove that you own the cookbook then? Oh, well, you, we're not giving away the recipes, so you don't need to prove that you own the cookbook. I you, see. We tell you where it is. We tell you which book, which page number, and then you go to your book to actually cook from. No, we couldn't, wouldn't be able to um, put the recipes up. That would be a breach of copyright. Yeah, yeah, uh, but but no, I, I now it's clear, um, and that makes perfect sense. So it's more you've done the the, the real legwork of indexing these books. Exactly. Right? You're indexing cookbooks and you're adding uh, ingredients and titles, uh, sorry, recipe titles. Um, what, are, yeah. what are a great resource for cookbook fans? Oh, it's huge. I mean, we've now got 2.2 million recipes on there, which, um, you know, as I said earlier, there's nowhere else in the world you can get this. So for, you know, anyone that's got, you know, even 20 cookbooks, let alone a few hundred, you know, it opens them up. Um, you know, our members say that they actually now use their cookbooks far more than they ever did. And buy more cookbooks, which is great yeah. for publishers. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful that you are are taking that upon yourself to index. How do you actually index these? Unfortunately, it's a manual process. We've tried to automate it, but because recipes aren't a standard format within books, you can do it with online. You can automate the indexing from online recipes because um, HTML is much easier to do that with. But but with cookbooks, um, it's very hard to um, automate it because you're, we're not looking at taking the full recipe. All we're looking at taking is the key ingredients and then adding the category tags, which aren't even listed on the recipes. Um, so um, it's a manual process. We have indexes all over the world who literally sit with the PDF or the book and manually enter the data into our database. That's amazing. And those are volunteer indexers. No, no, we have paid indexes, and uh, those are the books that we um, we want to get done. Those yeah. are all the um, the new books that we feel are worthy, and also the older books that are owned by a lot of members. But then members can index their own books as well, and those are volunteers. So if they own a book that's not on many bookshelves or owned by many members, they can volunteer to index it themselves using our database. And we have a lot of that. About a third of the books that are indexed on the site are done by member volunteers. What an incredible resource. And again, it's Eat Your Books and we'll link to it in the show notes. And I appreciate the time. I It's nice to you know finally get to talk to you. I think I've been following your work for years and now here we are. So thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been really thank enjoyable. Thank you for having us. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.